Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast explores contemporary culture at the center and fringe of art scenes around the world. In 2018, when the annual Creative Times Summit unfolds in Miami, we're thrilled to observe and participate. On archipelagos and other imaginaries, collective strategies to inhabit the world, gathers artists, thinkers, activists, and cultural producers whose practices stimulate change through planetary thinking. The nearby Caribbean archipelago serves as the perfect framework within which to question colonial and post-colonial ways of seeing and thinking. Presenters delve into Miami's historical connection to the Caribbean, and by extension to Latin America and the entire world. This gathering promises to spark decolonial dialogues and introduce new social imaginaries. Justine Ludwig, executive director of Creative Time, reflects on possible outcomes. Creative Time is a public arts organization that works with artists to contribute to the dialogues, debates, and dreams of our times. Tell me some of the history of the organization, what they've invented, what they've created, what they've shared with the world. The organization also functions quite differently from most public arts organizations. The projects that Creative Time takes on are cited in unique locations that really add to the larger narrative around the project. So site is very, very important when we're taking on a project. We're also thinking of interacting with very different communities. We often really depend on audience and viewer participation to fully realize the project. That it's not just a sculpture that exists within a park that people can come visit at any time, but it's more of an overarching experience where people are really brought into the work actively. So it's not just the moment when you see the project itself, but suddenly you're part of a community that's looking at pressing social issues and engaging with it collectively. And that is a very unique way of interacting with art. A very important component for the last 10 years, and this will be the 11th year, is the Creative Time Summit. Tell me what generated that idea. It responds to a need for people to come together and talk about pressing social issues. So it's a convening of artists, activists, important thinkers of our moment to really exchange ideas and look at the world and what we need to be actively talking about and addressing. And we aim to really make sure that the site of the summit itself helps define what we are addressing. So I also this happening in Miami. This is the first time that the summit has been held here. Yeah. So we wanted to look at pressing issues that relate directly to the context of Miami, one of those being climate change, another one being Miami's relationship to the Caribbean and Latin America at large. And so we're really using the site of the summit as a jumping off point for those issues because they're conversations that do not only affect Miami, they affect the larger United States and the world. But having them be discussed within this context adds a certain resonance and pressing call to arms in many ways. And there is an unbelievable wealth and 
diversity of cultural players in this community. And I see it as an opportunity to bring attention to that because it's not just the major arts institutions. There are also spaces that are adding nuance to these conversations and we get to work directly with them. Introduce what kinds of opportunities there are for these conversations to take place in Miami. People are coming in from all across the United States and quite a few people from around the world. So it's an important moment to bring in a larger creative and activist-minded community to Miami to see what's happening here and take part in this meeting of the minds. begins one starry night in November with Drag in La Frontera, an extravagant and exuberant performance at the Paris Art Museum. Can you shake your ass while I explain the program? Okay, I can do that. So La Frontera is the border. It's where we are. And uh, the performances you're seeing tonight are the result of crashes. They are collisions between different things and that's really what Miami is. We, we have a kind of bad rap for being superficial and blah, blah, blah. But what you'll see tonight is, and what you've seen already is uh, substance, a lot of me. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that's happening here and that we as queer people are doing here that's not being done elsewhere. So pay attention and also enjoy yourselves and uh, find new forms of pleasure tonight. Something you haven't felt before. In an ad hoc dressing room with windows overlooking Biscayne Bay, we watched Miami native Fredo Rivera change into a stage diva. Fredo Rivera, also known as Lolita Cabron. <laughs> Lolita Cabron in process. Yes, in transformation at the moment. I'm an art historian. I'm an assistant professor of art history at Grinnell College in Iowa. I'm a Miami native, so when I first finished my PhD, I moved down here and became part of one of the drag houses, House of Shame. And since moving to Iowa, I've kept my relationship strong with Miami. I occasionally come back and on a rare occasion get to perform. So I'm doing two looks tonight. Um, one is a performance that's inspired by the Surrounded Islands exhibition. So part of it involves unraveling pink plastic fabric. And then the other one is more of a Caribeña traditional style song. So Caribbean style. It'll be a, a Celia Cruz number. Nice. Who else will be performing with you tonight? Well, we have 13 different performers, and it's an array of drag queens, drag kings, queer performers um, throughout Miami. Many of them are part of the scene that was connected to a, a former monthly party called um, Counter Corner, which was an important venue for sort of, the development of queer and alternative drag in Miami. There's a sort of other venues such as Double Stubble and Gender Blender that sort of still work in that regard. And just to sort of highlight a few, we have Carla Croqueta, Julesi in Bed, Queef Latina, Dead Cooter, Opal Amra, Dangho You Sickening, um, Yoko Oso, Kunst, Miss Toto, Androgen. I think I'm getting most of them there. So <laughs> it's, it's a really great array of performers. And you're doing two sets tonight. Yes. The first set's going to take place in the interior auditorium. It's a little bit more of an intimate setting. It's going to sort of be closed curtains. 
A couple of the acts are going to have video projections associated with them. I really like the more earthy aesthetic of that space, particularly with the coloring of the cushions and the curtains. So I'm calling it the Everglades vaudeville stage. And then the second set is going to be an ascension um, towards the exterior patio of Pam. Um, We're calling it our City Light Stage, and it has a stage designed by the artist Sleeper, who incorporated the idea of tidal rage, or that reference of rising oceans, into his design for the stage, which has some of his black and white striped patterns, but in a way that reflects something that's very dynamic and also lit. So it's ascending into the city lights. And they both have to do with the environment. Yes, they very much have to do with the place of Miami. I think many of the queens are going to be, and kings, going to be showing their sort of best work and what they do. And some of the acts will really be adopting it to questions of place, whether it's the question of our place as queer people within society, or particularly questions that relate to Miami or water, or gentrification, et cetera. The title you've given the entire evening is Drag in the Frontera. Well, part of me is inspired by the Chicana feminist theorist Gloria Anzaldúa, who writes about La Frontera, or the borderlands, in her book, La Frontera, the Borderlands. She very much theorizes it as sort of a place where the first world grates against the third world, but also a space that becomes the space of creativity. So there's that theoretical foundation um, that I think inspires that title. But also referring to the borderland, um, I also shows or thinks about this form of art which can often be associated as being more lowbrow as actually quite avant-garde and showing people who are at the very edge and doing um, very creative things within the art scene in Miami. People love drag shows, I think in general, that are gonna be coming here. They want to see this. There's that sort of joy of drag. There's also sort of a very creative and unusual drag scene forming in Miami, and I hope it very much highlights what's happening with various of the queens, um, particularly on this side of the bay who are doing things that are very creative or edgy. I hope it also becomes a venue for maybe to think about sort of that relationship of drag and politics. I think Creative Times are very much concerned with the question of art and activism and that relationship. So perhaps it's a way to um, think about it in relationship to drag, which is often associated with a mimicking of popular culture in this day with RuPaul's Drag Race. But I actually think if you go back to drag's roots, particularly if you think of something like the Stonewall riots, drag queens are very essential in being key figures and fighting for political rights. You were never alone when your ancestors and elders walked with you, boy. You were born into the skin of tragedy, so everyone else can hear you speak salvation. Behind the scenes, we sit down with Miami-based Haitian-born author Edwidge Danticat to talk about what she hopes to bring and take away from the summit. It's a wonderful blend of art and activism and history and and just really taking a pause at this particular time to contextualize what is happening in, in our world today. What will be your message? You're giving one of the keynotes tomorrow. What do you want to say to this gathering? There's just so much we have to face these days. But I'm going to talk about this notion of reclaiming this term caravan, about us all joining caravans. Let's just, let's just say that because there's a lot of caravans in the news right now. And I just want to talk about what that means, what that has meant to me as a, an immigrant who has been part of a series of waves of migration from the place where I was born, which is Haiti, and then watching other waves of migration come under different names. So I want to talk about that 
around the notion of home, around the notion of homelessness and seeking home. It relates very well to the film you got involved with making with mm -hmm. Toni Morrison. Yeah, The Foreigner's Home. And the genesis of that film is a visit that Toni Morrison made to the Louvre. She was a writer in residence at the Louvre in 2016. And she picked this topic, l'étranger chez soi, you know, the foreigner at home, the foreigner's home, because in French, there's really not a word that pins down home, that notion that Americans, you know, like home is home sweet home. And so she was playing with this notion of claiming home as a foreigner. And also, is it ever a home? Like also, that's one of the things that I want to address, what does home mean? Is home the place where you're born? Is home the place where you die? Or is, the, or is home somewhere where you are in between? And more and more in the political environment that we're in now, a lot of us who thought we were home were having that question re-examined by people with power and, and sinister ideas about who belongs here. So what do you think is the importance of bringing Creative Time Summit, these conversations to where you live? I think the city, you know, Miami illustrates very well what a multicultural city is. There are a lot of people struggling here. There are a lot of new migrants here. There's a lot of money here. There's a lot of poverty here. It's one of those cities that I think has such a, a brew of different issues that it's kind of a, a microcosm of the world, really. And we have people from so many places here, some of them who want to call this place their home, some of them who are just passing through that I think it's, it's sort of a perfect laboratory for these issues. And there are many things that we can pull from that the city also can contribute to the people who have come here to offer their ideas. You know, we have so much gentrification, so much really economic displacement, if you will, and climate, you know, and the, and how that leads to economic choices that people are making. For example, Little Haiti is appealing to some because it's a little bit higher. Maybe we get an hour more before the tsunami hits us, right, if you're in a little bit higher ground. Uh, I think this city gives these thinkers also an opportunity to look at these things up close. And hopefully what you have is artists who come away inspired by the historians or by the intellectuals they hear, and intellectuals who come away, you know, inspired by the artists, by the work that they see. One of the themes this weekend is coalition. A gathering like that, you know, you hope something powerful comes out of it. I'm already inspired. I'm going to, I know I'm going to come out smarter, braver, and stronger for it. The first morning, Native American Samuel Tomey opens the main stage sessions at the Arsh Center with a flute prayer. Elvira Diangani Ose, curator and director of the Showroom Gallery in London and senior curator of Creative Time, reminds us how the perspectives of poet Fred Moten and philosopher Edouard Glissant resonate with the aspirations of the summit. This gathering is a tremendous opportunity to forge global connections and collaborations. American poet Fred Moten defines coalition 
as a recognition that practices of this position, whether they are cultural, political, environmental, or economical, whether they are occurring in our immediate environment or at a far distance, affect us all. To that extent, coalition is a realization of an unavoidable connectedness. We are all in this together. It is to that connectedness, to that sense of togetherness, to which this edition of the Creative Times Summit is devoted. Togetherness is at the core of the Edouard Glissant aesthetic of Chaos Monde, partly hinted in the, in the quote that you just read, to his poetics of relation, which is the expression of a totality, open, multilingual in intention, and directly connected to everything that is possible. One could argue that relation is the condition of possibility for a new sense of the collective to emerge, a collectivism that hints precisely, as it has been mentioned, on the ability of us all to find in common ways of articulating the universal, not as a value or culture or ground, but as a practice of living and working together in modes that are dialogical, participative, and radically egalitarian. Although this year we are celebrating the milestone in the history of international coalitions and solidarity, half a century later we are reminded of the resilience of the struggle of 1968 around the world. Today, artists, activists, students, dreamers, community organizers, cultural producers are actively challenging us to establish a different relationship with the environment, to refuse the enclosure of land, wealth, and culture, and collectively invent alternative social institutions and imaginaries. Presentations by our speakers and breakout sessions will consider, among others, issues around migrations and borders, climate realities, notions of intersectional justice, gentrification, tourism as a neighbor for neocolonialism, and the role that art and activism has to affect change. Is solidarity possible? Cuban-born artist Maria Magdalena Campos-Ponce is among the first to speak on boundaries and the possibility of a borderless future. Campos-Ponce is known for ritual performances that evoke the Black diasporan experience. In both her public talk and a private conversation, she reveals a deep sense of optimism. In my understanding and approach as an artist, or trying to construct narrative that talk about the riveting pain and the desperation that made people forced or involuntarily most of the time to go north, I go back to my ancestral line. We, the people of darker tone, some of us came here by forced migration. It was not voluntary. But in thinking of the future and the possibility of collective future, I imagine a world borderless, like our universe, 
there are no corner, harsh corner of age in our universe. It's an entity of a vast of energy in which we may be looking for our better self could really find the opportunity of connectors and connectness through love. I saw in the context of talking about islands, archipelagos, and the idea of a collective future no, that we are discussing today. And I was interested in only talking about the question of borders and boundaries as a territorial or geographical or place of birth, but also the idea of boundaries and territories about how do we have access or no access to different sites and institutions within the art world. So I was trying to create both conversation about really locality and at the same time conceptual about the insertion and the boundaries within practice of art. In this particular case, uh, the piece of the Guggenheim is me performing as the Guggenheim Museum, so I am creating this kind of centrifugal force when the architecture of Ranno Rai become core to the center of my body. When you have a birth view of the performance, a repetition of circular and a bit little point black in the center, that is me, the black body, a very important mind strain in contemporary American art practice. This piece is centered in a commentary about being in that occasion, the exhibition of Carrie Mae Wins, who was the very first black woman invited to have a solo show within the Guggenheim. The woman in the center of the performance has an invocation to Yemaya, the goddess of the oceans, the goddess of the river, very important in Yoruba tradition in Cuba. I am an optimistic. I always think it positive, and I am thinking in the idea, really, that we need to move forward to this uh, sense of collective destiny. Whatever the situation, the circumstances where we born, where we grow, where we live, still we are in this journey in planet Earth together. We live in a, in a form that is more harmonious, that is more round, that is more shapeless. So the idea of borders, the idea of boundaries, that division of South versus North, poor versus rich, educated versus no educated, behind all of that, there is a common humanity. And that was your message, love. I arrived, I was guided by love, and I believe that. I want to be an enabler. I want to be a mediator. I want to be a, a stream, a line that could bring some sort of balance and harmony between different parts. I would like my art to be a conduit to some understanding, to some moments of peace and throes and believing and dreaming. The archipelago, that whole idea of the expansive group of communities that are there and separated and also connected by water. Well, well you know, my, my retrospective in 2007, the title was Everything is Separated by Water. No, including your heart, my brain, my heart, my sex, my own. But I always thinking that that piece should have a continuum that is, and also everything is connected by water. But I'm thinking too about uh, this, really the experience to living in an archipelago and an island. And when I was saying that in the conversation this morning, the condition of the islands of the south and the condition of the island and the archipelago of the north, and, and this idea that seeing the island always as a, as a small drops, you know, points of passing by a point in which you need to go or you escape to, 
or you escape from, specifically from the South. And I am trying to, to find a way that how do we move forward with that condition? I always say Manhattan is an island and UK is an island. And it's an incredible archipelago of island in the Nordic country. And how is that different or similar to the condition of the islands? In, in, for, in my case, coming from Cuba, of the Caribbean, uh, what, is, what is different? What is this discussion and this dichotomy from south to north, from warm to cold, from the tropics and the, and the kind of uh, exuberance of the tropic and the kind of restricting uh, uh, of, of the north? I mean, what is the condition? Is geography a birthmark that cannot be erased, or, or is geography a point of departure a point and arrival. And I want to think that nationality and nationalism is a concept that we need to leave behind as we move forward in our collective destiny. I ask for your permission to be here. I ask for your blessing to be here. Yemaya, mother of the water, owner of the sea. Before she goes on stage with her son, Inti, Peruvian-born artist Daniela Ortiz shares her research. She's been studying the history of oppression in migratory politics. From Christopher Columbus to today's restrictive immigration laws, to the racism embedded in nursery rhymes. So you have this ever-evolving interest in immigration, migration. What, what do you consider to be your current preoccupations as an artist today? Usually I, ex I explain that I don't talk about immigration or migration, but mostly about the migratory control system, because what I have been trying to do is to like shift the point of view that Eurocentric, uh, let's say, art or uh, writing or anthropology has been put in that is to focus on the racialized migrant person and to shift it to see which is the system and who creates the system that controls and creates those situations, let's say, for example, of violence in border, of violence during deportation, etc. No? So basically... What so I rather than concentrate on the victim, you're concentrating on the on oppressor. The oppressor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what materialized at the new museum and the little Monument. monuments that you recreated <laughs> yeah. to monumentalize hmm. the treatment of various peoples. Hmm. Yeah, on one hand, the approach of taking out the Columbus monuments that exist in various places. Then on the other hand, it also, like, pointed out people who are responsible in the migratory control system with name and last name and also in the colonial history Another thing that I'm doing recently is to revindicate all the resistance because I think it's important to know that if there is oppression, there is always resistance. And it's, it's not a good idea also as a person who is really politicized and working in, like, in these kind of issues to only think as oppressed people because we also resist towards that system. No? So in the monuments, I had also a mention to these types of resistance to revindicate that. And here in Miami for Creative Time Summit, you're presenting a performance. Yeah, a semi-lecture performance information part with Inti, with my son. 
and we're going to present some information about how the migratory control system affects minors and pregnant women and families in, in Spain and in Europe. And also I'm going to sing a song, <laughs> a children's song that I have recomposed <laughs> for Inti. So what will Inti's role be in this performance? Well, he's a life proof of these racist policies in the Spanish context because he's a child that has been born in Spain, but he's not considered Spanish and he was confronted since his birth to the immigration law. And we were going to the immigration office since he was like three months until he was nine months. Like and for so all your home country is Peru. Uh-huh. And mm. is that why? Only the kids whose parents or the mother or the father has the Spanish nationality, they have the right to the Spanish nationality. If you're born there, but your parents are not Spanish, you inherit their nationality, but also their legal status. Therefore, there are a lot of children that are being born there that if their parents do not have papers, they are considered illegal immigrants since they are born. There is also a lot of cases, for example, of children that arrive to the 18 years old and they cannot find uh, the way to get legal and they end up being deported to a country they, they, they have never been to. They don't have any type of a connection, let's say, no? Actually, my whole investigation about the migratory control system, it started with my illegal situation back in 2010, that they basically like illegalized me after four years living in Spain. And I started my research because I was looking for a way of legalizing, and that's why I started reading the, the Spanish immigration law. And I was shocked of how much violence it permitted and how it created a system of persecution towards migrant people. I see that you continue to base your work on research. Yeah. And the law. Uh -huh. You study the law and you learn how to work around it. Yeah. And I have been reading about law and then also, like, some of that investigation ends up in artistic work, but I also do, like, let's say, more concrete investigation about like uh, legal processes, for example, from the European Commission and how, for example, they created a legal path for making collective deportation when it's prohibited in the Human Rights Charter of the European Union. And then also this year I am working in a research that would be more, let's say, um, philosophical, that has to do with law as a tool uh, for colonialism. Now that I'm with my son, I found a lot of, for example, children's book, racist children's book about Columbus, about colonization, about Pizarro, or other type of books that have a lot of uh, racist content. And in schools, the issue about colonial history is an issue, but it's always from, let's say, the European perspective. In the recent year, I have done like three children's books. I made the ABC of Racist Europe, then there is a monster under my bed that is a tale about the immigration beast, the immigration officer that is a beast, and it's a monster that hides under the, a children's bed. And then I made a new one that is about a white prince. It's a coloring book about a white prince that you cannot color because he's white like the paper. And then it's a whole tale of extractivism and, and how he imposes a system of extractivism in, in the Peruvian jungle. And uh, I have been working a lot with materials for uh, children no? because it's a big place where racism and colonialism is reinforced. The idea of children's re-education in a way that is more enlightened is a resistance mm -hmm. move on your part as yeah. well. Yeah, and we need to do it because we cannot normalize that like a three-month-old child can be considered illegal and he's forced to go to an immigration office or that there is a law that permits the detention of minors. 
And for me, it's really interesting how this kind of children material uh, narrate really violent moments of history or really violent uh, situations. In the lyrics? The lyrics, the whole imaginarium that I will show tomorrow, for example, about Columbus. That song comes from another song that is an American song that is called One Little, Two Little, Three Little Indians. I don't know if you know that song. Oh, yes. Well, the song before One Little, Two Little, Three Little Indians is a song that spoke and counted black children and every time one of the children will disappear from the counting, he would die in a really tragic and racist uh, situation. But then in the 60s, they changed the lyric to One Little, Two Little, Three Little Indians. Then there was a translation to Spanish that is the song that I will show tomorrow. And then what I did is to, to change the lyrics. So I will try to make it. Huh? I don't sing. I'm, I'm not a singer. I'm a mother that sings songs to her, her son. So... It says, here comes Cologne, the white people kill, they eat the gold. Then it says, the colonizer of nowadays is coming. And then it says, I put you in an immigrant detention center. I take out your kids. I put sedative on you. This is the racism of today. And then it says, uh, we break families. We deport minors, fucking colonizers. With strength, we will go to the struggle. My people is getting tired. This is going to explode. I burned Europe and I killed the colonizer, basically. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, but <laughs> it was uh, nap time. So, vale, iba. Voy a tratar, ¿eh? discúlpeme, porque <laughs> no, no es mi, no es mi, <laughs> no es mi esto. <laughs> Ahí está la letra para que quiera cantarla. <laughs> Bye, va. Uno y dos, ahí va Colón, tres, cuatro, matan los blancos, cinco, seis, comen el oro, ahí viene el colono de hoy. Uno, dos, te encierro en el CIE, tres, cuatro, te quito tu hijo, cinco, seis, te pincho sedante, es el racismo de hoy. Uno, dos, rompen familias, tres, cuatro, deportan menores, cinco, seis, colonos de mierda, con fuerza la lucha voy. Uno, dos, mi pueblo se agota. Tres, cuatro, estoy explota. Cinco, seis, yo quemo Europa. Muerta el colono, doy. Y bueno, esa es la... <laughs> ¡Bravo! We hear from activists engaging with a range of challenges in their communities. Colibri San Fiorenzo Barnhart is involved with education, conservation, and cultural grassroots actions in Puerto Rico. As she introduces Hacer, Haciendo Acciones Socioecológicas Resilientes, she acknowledges that building resilience takes time. Uh, I work with Hacer. Hacer is an organization that we formed in Puerto Rico to really stimulate uh, equity and quality of life in Puerto Rico. We were noticing things in Puerto Rico that are very common probably in all the places that you live in. And what we noticed was that really the change that can really happen has to happen at a very local level. And we realized that local wasn't even Puerto Rico, wasn't the archipelago of Puerto Rico, it was neighborhood scale. It was your neighborhood, it was you, yourself, the 10 streets that are next to you, and then those 10 streets right after that. Um, and that for us is local. Puerto Rico has a lot of community groups. We have about 12,000 nonprofits. Out of those, about 22% are community groups. Puerto Rico uh, is an archipelago, so we try and work on all the islands. 
We currently also work with groups in, in development. We have about seven groups that we support in different ways. And one of the amazing things that supports us or that helps us is that the groups are on the same page with us. And it's poco a poco. You know, one thing that the hurricane brought was everything has to be very fast. You know, when you think of philanthropy, it's like, take the money, take the money, take money, spend it, spend it, spend it. And that the groups are like, whoa, wait a second. Okay, let me just stand back. Give me a moment. Let me breathe this in. You want to give me half a million dollars? Okay, I haven't had $5 given to me before. You know, how do I handle this? And I think that one thing that the groups that we support and us have in common is that we're ready to do it poco a poco. You know, we're ready to take advantage of the fact that we have time, that it's not for tomorrow. It's for 10 years, it's for 15 years, it's for 20 years. We go backstage to meet artists and community members from Puerto de Tierra, a neighborhood in San Juan, Puerto Rico. We want to know more about their grassroots movement against gentrification and how they're recovering from recent hurricanes. Luis Agosto. I am Natalia. I'm from a neighboring community, but friend of Puerta Tierra. Oh, my name is Yadira Rivera. My name is Andrea Mojica Rivera. I'm Auri Montalvo. Jose Vélez, Puerta de Tierra. My name is Nacha Garcia. Yo estoy Maldonado, Puerta de Tierra. This project started four years ago. It's a community-based art collective that use art as a tool for social change. We have focused our work on youth and children of the neighborhood because we are conscious that the struggle we are in a phase is, uh, is long-term. We're very interested in developing the leaders of the future. And there's leaders of the future here in the room. So who can speak for the leaders of the future? We like want to help the community. We like do certain things like doing projects for the kids, doing speeches for the people. We are a big community. The brigade is a big, big community. Why was it necessary to organize? The Puerta de Tierra neighborhood has a, a big problem of displacement of the neighbors. Puerta de Tierra is located in Old San Juan, the capital of Puerto Rico. It is a large tourist center. The, the neighborhood is located in a land that is very valuable and changes are fast. The neighborhood is being gentrified very fast. We may basically do this because our wish is to stay in the neighborhood. In a nutshell, I've become involved with them because they're working in Plaza Rivera, which is a community herbal garden. It first started as a food garden, but now they've listened to the members of the community, which have been really interested in medicinal plants. And so they've, they've started to shift a little bit the view. Well, food is important and it's there, it just grows because. But they've shifted to kind of attend the needs or bring alternatives to the lack of medicinal services within the community. And so I'm becoming friends with the kids and with the neighbors and with Pichuala and Margarita. And so I'm here for relating and learning from this neighborhood and all they have to offer in terms of ethnobotanical knowledge and just 
friendships of survival. <laughs> I don't know. We hear still about technology and infrastructure, the, all the damages that were done last year. How are other artists getting involved in bringing the community back to life? Not only this one community, what's the bigger picture for Puerto Rico? The um, art community has been very uh, active since the hurricane, not only helping members within the art community, but also, or more importantly, communities that lost everything during the, the hurricane. In our particular case, we are uh, focused on the idea that the community itself is the artist that help us bring the community closer and work through the art practices to keep helping. That's something very important that we want to show today in a presentation. That's why everybody is here, youth uh, leaders and, and family members. Everybody united for the neighborhood and for Puerto Rico's uh, well-being. Resistance to displacement is a common thread. Mikasuki tribe member Houston Cypress, founder of Love the Everglades, leads the conversation in the direction of Florida's River of Grass. He points to the impact of climate realities on his tribe. So friends and family, welcome to this place that some of us care for as home. You know, borders are brutal these days, so I want to thank you for showing up with your courage and your perseverance and your hope. So we're looking at the Tamiami Trail heading west towards Naples. And what this road is doing is it's compartmentalizing a drying Everglades National Park and an inundated Miccosukee homelands. I come from an indigenous community, the Miccosukee tribe of Indians of Florida, that want to be left alone. And they want to be left alone so that they can continue their way of life. These lifeways are depending on a thriving environment. And to restore those conditions, the citizens of the state of Florida and the United States of America, they must work together with the indigenous communities to implement the policies, to deploy the resources, to accomplish one of the largest environmental restoration projects in the world. But none of what I'm saying is new. This just emphasizes the need to listen more closely to what the locals are saying. And so what are the locals saying? The local indigenous community are criticizing Everglades restoration. And we are demanding respect for expressions of sovereignty. How could that look like? Well, we definitely need funding for indigenous science. We need to respect data sovereignty. In terms of telling the truth, and honoring promises, these include the historical truths as well as the current promises. And that also means that restoration is a climate change resiliency strategy. When it comes to making relationships with indigenous communities, there's right times to visit when you're welcome. And there's definitely times to stay away. For example, when there are sacred events going on. Those are private. But invitations work miracles. Invite each other regularly. I encourage you to reach out to indigenous communities and encourage collaboration. To expand on the public presentations, summit organizers set up opportunities for locals and visitors to engage in conversations about social engagement, community activism, building coalitions, and more. 
Breakout sessions invite participants to gather inside culture spaces and outdoors in transitional neighborhoods. The intervention live from planet Earth pops up inside the Paris Art Museum. Angela Vallela and Rock La Seca bring the world indoors with wall-sized webcam projectors and a music track into which they weave the voice of Edouard Glissant. We have three uh, computers connected and we just link to the different webcams and earthcams that we have pre-selected. And the station, this uh, computer, connects with each of the images. So we're kind of traveling all over the world trying to connect what is going on and what is happening at this time. One of the first things and consequences that we get when we try to rehearse with this project is that nothing is happening around the world. Once you connect every time with Alaska, with Waikiki, with Berlin, or with Madrid, or with Miami, any webcam which is connected to the street, you just see people walking, just having you See fun. the waves on the shore. The waves on the shore. Penguins hanging you know out. Most time, we have this kind of inner anxiety of knowing where should I be rather than here. So this project also tries to relocate yourself as a spectator. It's right you are here because anywhere else is happening nothing, nothing special. So you it's are right in the right place. You are in the right place here. But this is very interesting because in terms of our cognitive experience, we are, our eyes and our minds are not used to interpret images that are taking place now. So once we connect with something that is taking place outside, we think that that is recorded or that is the experience of an artist or an artwork or the production or an image that has been pre-edited. But when we have this direct contact on what is happening, somehow connects towards what we were discussing last day in the summit, this ecological environment. Every image you're seeing is taking place now. You're connecting with different locations, not with different times, because what image connects us always is with different times, not only with different locations. This synchronicity that is something quite strange. What we come to see here at museums are stories, those histories that are told to us. Here there's no narrative, there's no control, there's no image editing. This is happening now in an experimental station. I did hear a philosophical statement overlaying the images at one point, Edouard Glissant. Correct. As the post-colonial station, we're trying to understand that here and now is the only place where you can be. The summit reaches its true fullness when Edwidge Danticat speaks to all who've gathered for this conversation in Miami. She evokes our global migration crisis in the huge caravan of people walking from South America to seek refuge in the United States. She invites individual and collective action. I want to spend our brief time together talking to you about 
caravans. And what they might have to teach us as both citizens and artists, as we do our best to inhabit these archipelagos, these groups of islands, both body and flesh islands, and soil and dirt islands, while resisting, or at least trying to resist, displacement and violence. I'm sure you've been hearing a lot about them lately, particularly one making its way across Mexico right now. Depending on who you are and where you get your news, the people in this caravan, as of yesterday, about 3,500 down from 7,000, mostly Central American, Hondurans primarily, families, including women and children, traveling on foot, fleeing poverty, gang activity, and one of the highest murder rates in the world. These people are risking everything, including being separated from their children for the mere possibility of a better life. Now, if you get your news from some other sources, you've been told that there's an invasion, an invading horde of diseased people, an assault on US borders coming to attack America. And their arrival, two months from now, demands the immediate deployment of between 5,000 and 15,000 active duty troops to protect this country's borders. The people in these caravan, these voices led by the President of the United States would have you believe are gang members, drug dealers, when they are not Middle Easterners, which is dog whistle for terrorists. The term caravan, though, goes back to a late 15th century Persian term, caravan, describing a group of people, most likely traders, traveling together across the desert or some other hostile region. In the old days, as now, it was the safest way to travel, as there is not just strength, but also safety and numbers. The thing is, human beings have been traveling, migrating since the beginning of time. We have always traveled from place to place, looking for better opportunities where they exist. And no matter how many walls are built, that will not change. After all, nature's walls, impassable raging rivers and deadly seas, treacherous mountain ranges, and yes, deserts too, have not stopped migrants from constantly leaving all kinds of places that, as the Somali Kenyan British poet Watson Shire has written, won't let them stay. My first exposure to caravans was as a little girl in Haiti watching American Westerns on television. We called them film cowboy or cowboy movies, and a lot of Westerns had some kind of caravan made up of covered wagons that needed defending from, guess who? The Native Americans who were fighting to keep inhabiting their world as they knew it and were resisting displacement and violence and annihilation. Most of the action scenes in these Westerns came from battles fought between the white men and sometimes white women in these caravans. In these Westerns, the people in the caravans had guns and the Native Americans had bows and arrows and would ultimately end up losing to the firepower and dying in large numbers. My parents and other family members loved watching those Westerns and always assured us when we were mis misguidedly afraid for the white man in these type of films, they assured us that the principal actor or hero, the John Wayne, Ronald Reagan, Clint Eastwood type, that nothing was going to happen to them because in these types of films, the heroes never die. 
What we didn't realize is that we were cheering for the wrong people. I want now to cheer for the right kind of caravan. I want to cheer for these people who at this rate, when or if they ever make it to the US border, from which they are nearly a thousand miles away, will each possibly have between five and 10 active duty soldiers individually deployed for each of them. Rocks will be considered weapons, the president said yesterday, and rocks is weapons plus invasion equals war. Zake, I want to cheer for this caravan that war has been declared on. I want to cheer for their internationally recognized right based on Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to seek asylum from persecution where they're coming from. And who will they seek protection from when they are confronted by these US soldiers waiting for them at the border? I want to shout through my computer and our television screen and let them know, if they don't already know it, that they are not alone, that their caravan is part of a much larger caravan that is 68 0.5 million strong. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, we now have the highest levels of displacement on record on this planet. An unprecedented 68.5 million of our fellow human beings worldwide are displaced because of war, economic, environmental, or political instability. This notion of a caravan has homelessness and statelessness and general unwantedness the notion of a caravan of desperate men, women, and children being seen as an invading force has also made me re-ask myself what home is. Hey, as Haitians, we say lakai, say lakai, home is home. And that means no matter how challenging things are at home, home is still home. But what if home won't let you stay? We don't always get to decide where we call home. At times, immigration officers, border guards, presidents of the United States decide whether our children sleep in beds or in cages. Tell us, the novelist Toni Morrison said in her 1993 Nobel lecture, what it is to have no home in this place, to be set adrift from the one you knew, what it is to live on the edge of towns that cannot bear your company. However, those of us who are looking for ways to inhabit an ever-changing world, resist displacement and violence, and want to help others in their struggle to do the same, can learn a few things from these brave men and women who are walking 30 miles a day, seven days a week, and risking everything to take part in these caravans. The first thing is that stories must be shared. Stories about the difficulties of the past, as well as the possibilities of the future. I am a writer because I believe so strongly in this. And I think even the people who are at taking risk in these caravans, who are sharing their stories with reporters, are in small ways negating the fact that they're being painted as terrorists. When a mother is changing a diaper as she's telling her story of running away from a gang, if people want to believe what they still believe, they can, but at least that story is still out there. The second thing we can learn from these folks, I think, is that as the Haitian national anthem says, l'union fait la force, or in unity, there is strength. There is strength, even not always completely in safety and numbers, but at least there are more witnesses when we have larger numbers. Those of us who are trying to inhabit this current version of this particular world 
and are trying to resist displacement and violence, we need to put aside some turf wars, pull our voices and skills together, form alliances and build coalitions. We need to start practicing what in Haiti we called combit, which is basically today you work my land, tomorrow I work yours. The writer Jacques Romain, whose seminal novel of Haiti was translated by Langston Hughes, who was a, a great friend of his, said, cooperation is the friendship of the poor. Sometimes coalition is the friendship of the desperate. We must offer sanctuary, or as Gwendolyn Brooks put it in a poem that she wrote for Paul Robeson, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. The third thing we can learn, I think, is perseverance. Imagine how much perseverance it takes to walk 30 miles a day, seven days a week, sometimes with a small child in your arms, or to take to the high seas in an overcrowded boat with your whole family with you, sometimes generations of that family. You do this because you feel as though you absolutely have no choice. As Warson Shire wrote in her poem, you do it because home won't let you stay. Part of persevering is sometimes just putting one foot in front of the other. And these times might make us all feel frozen and overwhelmed, but just take one step. I'm exhausted, you said, I am tired. And sometimes when you're walking for long distances, you get tired and risk lying down and giving up at some point. You think your pain and your heartbreak or unprecedented in the history of the world, James Baldwin wrote, but then you read. And I hasten to add, and I dare to add to the great man's words, or you see, or you witness, or you observe, or you write, or you paint, or you sing, or you dance, or you join some kind of caravan, or create one of your own. Zake, like the weeping angels Elvis Fuentes talked about earlier today, from our archipelago, the Tainos believed themselves to have originally been cave people who would turn into stone when touched by sunlight. They knew the risk when they stepped into the light, but they did it anyway to create a new world, a world that continues to exist because we are still here. Don't turn your back. Don't look away. Don't blink. As Elvis said, as you imagine a borderless future, don't blink. Walk, keep walking, inside or outside of a caravan. Keep walking as though you have the right to exist, as though you have every right to be here. I want to give the final words to Entezaki Shange from her collection of poems, From Okra to Greens. Rise up fallen fighters, she wrote, unfetter the stars, dance with the universe, and make it yours. Thank you. Looking back, we remember a truly grand finale at the Arsh Center, when activist Cuban performers known as Crudas Cubensi bring their high energy into the summit's communal space. Buenas tardes. Situaciones, origen estadístico. 
ya tú Siento tu manto, es incierto, es tiempo, es vida, es frustración, es resurrección, esto es canción. Y todavía siento desoluciones, tantas vías, hay tanta pobreza y tanta miseria. Revolution Regen Beef, mi día. Tengo tu alma, tengo la mía. Está llena, no está vacía, mi alcancía. Perseverancia y maestría, destreza y sincronía. Inconformidad en mi letanía, en mi letaco, llego y me lago. Tanta cadencia y abundancia. ¿Cuándo dejará de ser una utopía? Soy negra, soy caminante, estoy expuesta, soy vulnerable. Todavía hay tanto que no hemos tenido la opción. Todavía, todavía. Artists, thinkers, and activists coming together in Miami in 2018 consider some of the most vital issues of our time. Once again, The Creative Times Summit invites us to meet at the intersection of art and activism. This year, the summit encourages us to face climate realities, consider a possible green, borderless future, advocate for intersectional justice, and resist displacement and violence. Here, we share only a fragment of the powerful stories that have come to Miami. To learn more, visit creativetime.org. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International on Apple Podcasts. We invite you to make a one-time donation or become a supporting member with a monthly gift. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation will match every dollar we receive. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.